Hello and welcome to another very exciting episode of Sigma Sports Presents Matt Stevens Unplugged. This is the Phil Guyman episode. Now, what can I tell you about Phil? Well, he's everybody's favourite ex-pro, but he refers to himself as an unprofessional cyclist. He's always had an ardent anti-doping stance and even has a tattoo of the word clean on a bar of soap on his arm, a bit like the Fight Club logo. He had an impressive pro career, but has really set himself apart from his contemporaries since his retirement, and we chat all about that. He's got more Strava KOMs than you and I put together, unless you happen to be Alberto Contador. Hello, Alberto. He's very fond as well of a tangent, which has made this one of my favourite episodes of the podcast ever. So sit back, relax, and find out which one of us froze up in the presence of Stephen Hawking, because this is the Phil Guyman episode. You know it's that time again, Podcast. Phil Guyman had an impressive domestic racing career in the USA, moving up the ranks over the course of seven seasons before signing for Garmin Sharp in 2014. His pro career was a bit stop-start by his own admission, despite always doing his bit for his team. Since retiring, Phil shifted his focus to riding bikes for fun, spontaneously supporting his sponsors and carving out a career in a unique way. He's also a celebrated author, with three books published to date – but what place in the universe does he think he might possess in relation to the Big Bang? There's only one way to find out, folks. Check it out. Phil, first and foremost, I'm going to uh, first welcome you onto the pod and thank you for joining me. No, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's good to catch up with you. Definitely, mate. And, um, and secondly, apologies for being late to my own podcast. Um, that might be the first time, but, um, but there you go. But, uh, yeah, no, great. There's probably a lot of traffic, you know? Yeah, it's, it's there's been it's, I've been doing a lot of spinning plates today. It's been great fun though. Um, I'm not going to complain, but there was a, a slight a crash of highlights into uh, into this podcast, mate. But no, it's been it's great to have you on. And um, I think the last time we spoke was in real life. Well, actually, just forever was would have been in Taiwan. That's true. That was fun. Yeah, uh, yeah. The KOM challenge. I forget what year that was. Seventeen, eighteen. One of those. I th- do you know what I? Th- Think your th- other. S- I think it was I. Sixteen. I sixteen. So it definitely wasn't sixteen. I was still so seven, seventeen. After yeah, okay. Yeah, twenty seventeen. I mean, that is a a whole podcast a forward slash Netflix series in itself, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, um, it was, yeah. do you know what uh, Phil? I mean, we, we might as well talk about that a little bit. I know it's a, a strange way, but because what it is, it's obviously I've known you for known of you for a long time. That was the first time we ever had a. A conversation and met sure. up and and I think you put the probably the best part of 45 minutes into me on that climb um <laughs> but what an epic de- what 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 I mean you, you're 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 a specialist climber um have you ever faced anything quite like that beast of a hill in Taiwan which incidentally climbed from zero meters sea level to 3750 meters above sea level yeah I've I think <laughs> there's there's two climbs that I can think of that are that are comparable um, there's Letras in, in Colombia. Um, that one, I think the, the, the KOM on that is around like three and a half hours if I have that right. Um, but it's, it's farther in distance. So it's not as much altitude, but it's farther in distance. The, the big one, and people don't talk about this one enough is, uh, Mauna Kea on the big Island of Hawaii. Um, I, I did it honestly. I, so I did that climb new year's Eve, uh, the year I retired. So it was my, technically my last day as a professional. Uh, so now I'm going to change the subject from the Taiwan one and talk about <laughs> That's fine. Ta- it's all, mate, it's all about the tangents. Don't worry. Yeah, that's what podcasts are. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so it was, it was my last day as a pro, which was like emotional for a lot of reasons. I didn't know what I was doing next. I was trying to figure my life out. I had a job offer that never panned out. Um, I had just met coincidentally, like in, in LA, I had met, uh, Kevin Sistrom, the founder of Instagram. Yeah. Um, and he happened to be in Hawaii the same time I was gonna be there with my family for new year's Eve. And he was like, I'm going to try this volcano. Uh, maybe you want to ride with me. And, uh, <clears throat> so I did that with him kind of like almost on a whim. I had just been playing, I had a Strava account for like two or three months. I was getting local KOMs and kind of having fun with it. Um, so I was like, okay, screw it. I'll go for this one. And then I'll go back down and like ride with Kevin for a little bit. It was, you know, you dip your bike in the water, uh, is kind of the tradition to start. So you're starting at zero. It goes up to, sorry, I'm American. It's like 14,700 feet. It's something insane. It's, it's 
4,000 plus meters. Wow. Uh, you go through four different climate zones. It could be <laughs> 10, I forget. Uh, but it was like a beautiful day at the bottom, a wall of snow at the top. Um, of course, I'm there with with uh, you know a billionaire, so he's got like a bottle of Dom at the at the finish. <laughs> um, it was it was one of the coolest. It, honestly, that was that's the ride I think about every day. Uh, one of the coolest rides in my life, and kind of opened the doors to like, hey, there's a lot of cool stuff that you can do with bikes. It's not bike racing, and yeah. and accidentally like launched me into this next thing. Like I ended up at the end of that, I had a couple like you know, brands that had sponsored me for racing or sponsored teams I was on who were like, Hey, can we sponsor this? And I was like, what do you mean this? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a really interesting point because, um, um, I was watching one of your YouTube videos the other day, um, where you, you talk about, uh, the past a little bit and you primarily yeah. look at what you're going to be doing in 2022 and, and a little bit beyond. And, um, and I remember, I think it was the day before we did the the uh, KOM in Taiwan. We went on a bit of a little loosener ride. Uh, we mm-hmm. climbed up the lower slopes of it for a few K, took a few photos. It was a great day out, actually. I remember it really well. The more yes. I think about it, the more I remember. I remember having a chat to you, and you were – it was a year after you retired, and you were on the cusp of just trying to work out what you were wanting to do, and you were picking my brains about YouTube and stuff because I was with GCN then. And, and I could sense you were really, really eager, although you didn't quite know what you were going to do, but you had this – you still had – I don't like to use the word passion, but you had this drive, this desire to do something. But I guess at that point, you hadn't quite worked it out yet, had you? At, at that point, I, I I think I knew what I wanted to do, which is like keep having adventures on the bike and enjoying it. Uh, at that point, I was I was I I wasn't able to monetize it yet. I wasn't uh, the 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 sponsorships kind of you know you tell us you tell a, a cycling industry brand. Um, what you're doing. And they're like, well, we should pay you for that. And I'm like, well, you pay so-and-so $200,000 to get 11th at a race no one's ever heard of. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But at the time it was a big leap uh, yeah. and, and it wasn't, it wasn't working. It didn't work for the first year of, of retirement. Um, I, I had a, I wrote, I wrote my book, I wrote draft animals. So I had, yeah. I lived off my book advance that year. Um, I think my sponsorships that year were added up to like $30,000, which isn't nothing, but not, not going to, you know, pay the mortgage. Yeah. Um, and after that, it started to, to improve and kind of became a thing. Well, let's, we've vaulted forward ever so slightly. And I do like that. I, I feel this is going to be a, uh, a tangential pod, which I do enjoy. But what I'd like to do before we basically get back to the point we're, that we're on now, it just set the scene a bit, Phil. Mm-hmm. So could you tell um, the listeners, I was about to say viewers, uh, it's purely going to be listeners because this is a podcast. It's not video. Um, where, where you are in the world and what you can see immediately around you so we can set the scene. Where are you? What can you sure. see? And what, also, sure. do you know what, what can you smell, Phil? What can you smell as well? I smell. Um, I think it's, it's early, so I don't, I don't smell yet. I'm going to go ride later. So there will be <laughs> okay. smells soon. Um, no, I'm in my, I'm in my guest room, which is the room that's most likely to be quiet. Uh, I've got two dogs running around and then someone's going to be repairing my fence in the back. Um, so there's potential noises. So I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm glad no, this is not a video podcast. I am currently in, I'm in my kit, but I put a, a flannel robe over it for warmth. Um, okay. so that's, that's my, my current situation. But I, I live in Los Angeles. I'm in, uh, the, the neighborhood of Woodland Hills, which is kind of in the valley, uh, less less fancy part of LA and closer to the the nice riding in uh, in Malibu. Um, yeah, it's the that's that's the that's the lay of the land here. Good stuff. Uh, yeah, I've been lucky enough to go come to Los Angeles a couple of times. Once with my bike, and I absolutely loved it. I'd love to come back at some point uh, when things have calmed down um, and when things are a little bit more more regular. But um, so okay, um, actually, let's rewind even further. Let's let's do things in a little bit of a slightly linear fashion. Billions of years um, ago, all of the matter in the universe was condensed into one tiny piece and yeah. then it exploded. It was known as a big yeah. bang. Yeah. Is that too um, No, I think that's fine. And, and where, <laughs> where, Phil, do you fit in with that? I mean, um, do, can you remember how you eventually coalesced uh, and came to Basically, be who you are today? How I was created. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's... That, it, I mean, yeah, we are all put, we are all matter. You know, we are, we are, we will live and we will die mm-hmm. and we will eventually become part of somebody else potentially as well, because we all breathe each other in. It's kind of weird, isn't it? When oh, you're okay. the noise, oh, it's crazy. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's true. No, and we were all also a product of our parents doing something we'd rather not think about. Indeed. 
There's all sorts of, of, of things going on in my mind now, and you've completely thrown me off any sense of, 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 of making this a linear podcast. But I do like the idea of the Big Bang. I, I tell you what, um, when, I, when I read um, – what's the first Stephen Hawking book? Uh, the Universe – it's not the no, – the oh, Universe. Brief History of Time. Yeah. yeah. I was reading A Brief History of Time several years ago, um, and I do like and, – and obviously um, I, I like the idea. I'm not a religious man, but I do like the idea that Hawking – he he talks about he can understand through um, through science through mathematics application of mathematics they can build these models um, in relation to the big bang and, and the expansion and then the and then the uh, the universe converging again depending on the model that you look at but right. but what he can't what science can't explain which is bonkers is what happened before the big bang what existed then and that's where he steps back and postulates and suggests. Um, a higher being, a higher power that nobody can understand. And I really like um, the way Hawking positioned himself in relation to that. I mean, there is mathematics, but there's also the utter unknown um, and, and the reason for our existing. This is an awesome tangent for a bike podcast. I'm so <laughs> <about> it. <laughs> it is though, isn't it? You know, it's, um, it, it is nuts. It kind of blows, it, it really does blow my mind. Everyone um, should have a read that. I, I read that in, in, I think it was middle school and I was too young for it, but it was, yeah. it was a moment. My mom was trying to make me do a bar mitzvah. Uh, and I, and I, I kind of, I, I, I was pretty sure I didn't believe in any of that stuff but I wasn't able to articulate it. That was the first fight I had with my mom was I don't want to have a bar mitzvah. Right. Um, and that, that book was enabling. Yeah. It's a, it's a great, but the, the second book that he wrote off the back of that, uh, I advise to read as well. It's uh, it, it takes into, there's a, a, as it evolves, there's a lot of new theory that, that gets thrown in. So he's constantly revisiting and revising what he, he believes in, which I think is wonderful as well. It's a, a, a constant process of learning. It's called The Universe in a Nutshell, which is a really, okay. really good read, by the way, as well. Um, it, it goes into a lot of detail. So anyway, um, so yeah, we brought in Stephen Hawking. Actually, I met Stephen Hawking. What? Um, yeah, I met him. Um, I, I know this, is, this pod's about you. But as we've brought that up, I, 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 I met him. I, 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 yeah, I met him backstage at a, uh, a concert um, a few years ago, and I, I was so dumbfounded, uh, I, I, I couldn't speak. I just looked at him and was in a state of awe and shock, and I didn't say a word to him because I, I couldn't, I, I didn't have the ability to. Yeah, oh, that's that's the first, yeah, incredible. Anyway, so so Phil, take us back to the start. Uh, let's say. Um, a billion years after the Big Bang, when okay. you when you were probably I don't know six or seven years of age, um, and ha- what was your, what's your first memories of the bicycle, which has essentially shaped your your later life, hasn't it? Sure, yeah. So my my dad uh, my dad was German, uh, grew up in Germany, big cycling culture there. That's kind of like that was his default mode of transportation as a kid. Um, my, my grandma is 93. I'm not sure if she owns a car. She just rides her bike everywhere still. Um, at least she did as of a couple of years ago. I haven't, I've been able to visit for a while, obviously. Mm. Um, but, uh, my, so my dad just, you know, no, no competition, no sports in my family at all, but, but bike riding was kind of our family vacations. So we'd go to, uh, lived in, lived outside of Atlanta. Um, our, our kind of summer trips were, would be to Jekyll Island, Georgia, where there's like all these little bike paths. So you'd like take the bike path and, and go to lunch and then ride to the beach. Um, so that was sort of how I, how I was introduced to, to cycling, of really just from a tourism perspective um, and a little bit of transportation as well. And, and how did that ultimately lead to, lead to you wanting to, to compete? Yeah. Um, how, how, I, did, how did that evolve? I, uh, in, in high school, the, my, my school bus route uh, was, I, I was the first person to get picked up. So they'd pick me up at, I forget, like six in the morning and then go through every neighborhood in Atlanta. And then they'd drive me to like a shuttle. You'd switch buses and you'd ride and you'd take another bus to the, to the actual school. Mm. And at some point I think I missed the bus and I was like, crap, I better get to the the shuttle. So I went on my bike and I got there like half an hour faster. Um, right. Yeah, and I was like, okay, that's just what I'm going to do from now on. And then a few a few months into that, I realized I could ride to school faster, uh, and I was riding all on sidewalks. I, I probably some kind of a huffy. Uh, at some <laughs> yeah. point, I got a I got a hybrid, and and it was sort of a fun thing to like beat my friends to school on the bike, 
Um, at that point, I was I was super into video games. I was I was I was obese before I started riding. So like age 13, 14, I was I was a, I was a chubby kid. Okay. Um, and from from riding like junior year, basically it was junior years when I started riding in high school. Um, I I went from a size thirty eight inch waist uh, to to thirty. Uh, lost forty pounds. Sorry again wow. for the the standard uh, measurements. And um, and I and I just kind of fell in love with bike riding. That became like just I would just ride around Atlanta on the weekends and during the summer and kind of explore things, visit my friends. Uh, so when I went to college, I didn't know anybody. This was, I went to the University of Florida. Um, I just joined the cycling club, thinking like, oh, they must like riding bikes. Um, and of course, their whole thing was like, you know, it's a club sport, but it was racing. Yeah. So they had road bikes and skinny tires and and tight pants. Um, so I went to a couple kind of training races with them and I, I just, I enjoyed riding so much that I just did all the training with, you know, it was my only friends when I first got to school was just through that network. Right. Uh, so we went to the first races and I think I won my first two races just cause I've been riding a ton and I'm racing the lower categories. So it, really, it felt like the first thing I was ever good at. Right. Um, and, and it just became like my network and my favorite thing to do and, and a, a very slippery slope <laughs> for, for the next, uh, question mark years. Cause I'm still doing it. So did you, with, uh, during that particular time at, at college, um, what were you, obviously the cycling was parallel and it seems as if it was a really organic process. You just kind of fell into it and all, right. almost began racing by mistake. What was, what else was going on in your life at that particular time? Did you have any aims and objectives from an academic perspective or any other kind of profession um, at that particular point? I think, I'd, you know, you, when you go to college and, and your parents are paying for it, you uh, you kind of have a, a job at the end of it somewhere. I think I told my parents, I think at first I want to be a lawyer and then I wanted to be, uh, and then I, I talked about, um, uh, what was it? I think it was political science major first and then English major and law school was in the conversation uh, for for most of that, but I don't know if I ever meant it. I know I said it because I wanted to major in English because I really liked writing and I actually liked reading. I wasn't into writing yet, but I really, I remember like I, University of Florida. The, the it's a it's a giant college. It's one of the bigger schools in the U.S. Um, the so that's kind of the bad news, but the good news is you can major in anything you want. So it's a good place to go if you have no idea what you want to do. So I think nice. I changed majors a couple times. Um, and my, I kind of, the gravity was just like, well, I like reading, so I'll just major in English literature. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I minored, I minored in journalism. Right. Uh, and it was just an excuse to read books. Which I, I guess spinning off a little bit again into the future really laid the, the foundations for your ability to, to write a book, I guess as well. That would have helped. Yeah, at some point yeah. I was, I was like, well, I have this degree and I'm a bike racer, so I should probably try and do something with it. So that turned into when I, when I graduated from college, uh, my, my joke is always the, the English factory wasn't hiring. Uh, so I went and raced bikes. I rode for jelly belly for, for basically no salary for the first yeah. year. Um, so I was living on prize money and, and sleeping on couches kind of thing. Uh, and I, I got basically magazine published a uh, blog. I just wrote like a weekly blog for them. Um, and that kind of turned into the writing thing. At some point I did that for years. I had an article and I had a monthly column in Velo news for a while. Um, and that kind of turned into, at one point I collected all of the blogs that I'd written. They were just all in one giant Word doc. And I was like, I think it was like 200 pages. Like, hey, there's a book in there if I just yeah. stuff. Uh, that was my first book. <laughs> so to, to your, I, I, like, Phil, I'll be honest with you. I haven't read your book. I own it. I've got That's it downstairs and I, I will read it. I haven't read it yet. But what? how would you describe the way that you write? Because I know that the, the books have been you know, very well received. Um, but I'm intrigued to you know, to you as a character, I know you a little bit as a person, but I'm intrigued. How, how would you define your particular style of, of writing? Um, I, I think my, I guess my writing is, is very, what I've, what I've written is always autobiographical kind of thing. It started, the, the, the spine of my first book was this blog that I wrote for at the time, like seven years. Yeah. Um, and, and so it was just, it was, it was basically that. And then, you know, you, you find a beginning, middle and end. Um, the, the first book, the, the process was super messy cause I didn't know how to write a book. Um, so that one, it was, it was really just, I, I, th I think the first draft was like twice as long as it was supposed to be. And then it was just deleting things that weren't good and then connecting them. Uh, the second book is the, so that was pro second $10 a day. Uh, that was published by Velo press and yeah, it, it did, it did well, uh, for, I mean, it still, it still sells fine. Um, the second one, I kind of knew how to write a book at that point. 
and yeah. my process was entirely different. Uh, where I, I I started the beginning, and then when I would get stuck, I would go back to the beginning and keep repeating. And each time, I would just get a little bit farther right. um, until it was done. It was it was I, I don't I think everyone has their own processes. I'm not sure if I'd recommend that um, right. or how I would even do it again. <laughs> but it yes. is I, I the, the flow ended up happening really well because I was I was just doing it in real time almost. If that makes sense. So it's, it's quite clear from from what you're saying um, that <clears throat> you. Although you had a desire to turn pro and race in Europe, which you ultimately did, you know, wait for an American team, um, you, you sound like the kind of character that's always got something else kind of going on. You don't know quite what it could be, but you're a very capable individual. And bike racing was just something that you loved, and you just wanted to to try and do. And in the, and this is you. This is you saying this, but it didn't quite work out. I mean, you you end up signing for Garmin, the World Tour team we all know about, um, yep. the team that everybody loves. Um, and still loves, I, I think, you know, essentially the same, the same infrastructure, isn't it? Albeit with a different name now. But what was it like um, getting picked up eventually by, by JV's team? Yeah, that was the thing. It was, I, I mean, there's there kind of two parts in there. I, I never, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't quite make it in that. Like I never got to experience the, I, I got to the big races, but I never kind of got to have the lifestyle uh, or, or any form of security or longevity there. Um, I didn't get to do a grand tour. My only the only race I did that, you know, mainstream might've heard of is Roubaix, which I kind of did as a joke, not a, you know, it wasn't my joke. It was a joke on me. <laughs> um, but so, so that was the first book was, uh, was, was the whole, the end of that was signing to that team. That was kind of yeah. the, the dream come true, the happy ending. Um, I was, you know, coming up in the U S it's one of those things you, so the, I, I imagine it works similar in, in the UK and Europe, but you start here, you're a cat five, you, you, do 10, 10 races, you get to be category four, you win four races. I'm not sure that it changes, but there's a whole category. So there's this ladder. Um, and the top of that ladder is, you know, a professional team in the U S and then theoretically world tour. And in, in that whole era, the, the 10 years that I did it, there were three guys who actually climbed that ladder. Like it's not even a real thing. Yeah. Um, most of the guys who go to, who go to that, who go to Europe, who, who have the, the life that we see on TV, they're just picked at 16 uh, because they're that good and, and they're kind of fast tracked. Um, yeah, yeah. so, so the ladder that I, that I was kind of chasing, ultimately it, it worked, uh, but I got there super late. Um, my, my first year on a world tour team, I was 27. Um, so at that point, like, you know, my body had adapted to the American races, which were shorter. Um, and it's just, you know, it's just to, to really be relevant in the world tour, you just got to start younger um, was kind of what I learned. So that was, that was tough. Um, but yeah, that was, that was signed to that team was definitely a dream come true. And I, I sort of thought at the time, I was like, oh yeah, um, that's going to be my next 10 years. I'll retire at, you know, 35, 37, something like sure. that. Like most guys do. And I'll have a few dollars in the bank and I'll have lived in Girona and, and all that stuff. Um, and none of that quite worked out. That was why I had to write the second book. But you, but you, you started with a bang, didn't you? As, uh, and some people won't know, a lot of people do know who, who follow you uh, closely, but yeah, you can't really. It's hundred percent. You started off with with a win in in uh, at the Tour de Saint Louis, didn't you? You know, um, yeah. finishing in in Villa Mercedes. I mean, that must have been um, unexpected. But hey, what a way to open your account with the squad. Yeah, that was that was hilarious. Um, <laughs> I, I like the way you call it hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> there was it was. Um, I think they told me to cover the early breaks, and uh, and I did. And you know, first race of the year, everyone kind of sat up, and the early break got twenty minutes. Um, and there were, there were a couple of guys in there and at the end, like I won the first stage and it was kind of five minutes back to the group. Um, so I, I had yellow, I was, well, I was, the Jersey was orange, which is annoying. I was in the leader's Jersey for, uh, it was, it was, I think I was in the leader's for five days with, right. uh, with Nairo Quintana, who was definitely the favorite. And there was three mountaintop stages and he was just kind of like pecking away at me the whole time and eventually did get me. And I finished second overall. Um, but it was, it was a really cool experience. Um, and, uh, and I still, I still rode well, the last, the last mountaintop finish, I was sort of expected to just tumble down the standings and, and go from like that point I was, there were a lot of guys who were close to me in the top five. Um, but I, I held on to the front group. I think I came ninth or 10th. Um, and I, I dropped some big names. It was like, all right, I kind of deserve to be here. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll correct you actually because obviously I don't think. Obviously, I have the luxury of pro cycling stats right in front of me. You were eighth on that stage, uh, okay. um, and the rider just behind you was Adam Yates, for example. Just to put that into a little bit of perspective, 
So that, I mean, coming out of that race and into the rest of the season, I mean, um, at what point then, because then that must have given you a lot of hope and a lot of belief. You clearly, you've been signed for a World Tour team, so clearly there's a team that believed in your potential. And and coming off and hitting the ground running like that must have, it really enthused you and, and, and you must have been in a very, very good place. But you only actually rode for the team before rejoining them a couple of years later for one year. So, so what do you think went wrong, if anything? I mean, or did you just not fit? Because uh, what actually happened there? Yeah, that's that's complicated. I think, um, I mean, I've definitely have given it a lot of thought. Mm. Um, I think at the time, you know, it's it's a weird thing where when coming up in the U.S., I have a clean tattoo. I, I was very loud about anti-doping. And, you know, I think a lot of a lot of fans were, were kind of pressuring Garmin Sharp voters to sign me. Um, and I, you know, I'd, I'd won a lot of races here. I'd won some races pretty dominantly. Yeah. Um, if, you know, and at that point for him, he kind of had a little, uh, he, he had some tough PR with the, you know, Vandeveld and Miller and Danielson who'd all, uh, admitted their thing. So like, he's the clean team, but it's full of a bunch of dopers. So he had that to overcome. And in, in this weird situation, I, I put myself where he had to sign me. Yeah. Um, I don't think I realized at the time, but but sure. I think he okay. had to sign me, and I think the the culture of that team wasn't quite ready for me. Right. Um, and so when I got there, um, you know, you're I'm I'm a guy with a clean tattoo on a bus with with David Miller, and I think a lot of those guys, and and he's you know he's just one, but th- there are a lot of those guys who came through, and they they think maybe they think I don't like them, and a lot of the directors came from that era, um, and. And I was just, I tried to be quiet, but somehow like socially, politically, um, I, I never, a lot of those guys on that team, I'm still friends with this day, but kind of a lot of those guys, I think, uh, kind of didn't, didn't like my whole, my whole thing. I was also really good at getting attention out of proportion to, to my ability, which I think rubbed people the wrong way, but you know, that was, <laughs> I, I was, I, I got there cause I wrote a blog and people care about me, um, and, and eventually like the, the, the clean tattoo that kind of got me there in a lot of ways and that whole being outspoken, uh, I, I don't think helped me. It's not like the team was trying to make me dope or mad that I was against doping. It was just, it was a little more passive than that, but that was sure. sort of, I think how it came where I, my, my experience that year was every, every race I went to, I, I did, you know, they, they ask you to pull until 10 K to go and I make it till seven K to go. Like I would do a little bit more than, than it was expected of me. Uh, but then somehow it wouldn't turn into another opportunity later. Um, and, and at the end of the year, the, the, the team merged with Cannondale yeah, of course, uh, yeah. and I was, and I was left out of that. So, yeah. Yeah. You did a lot. You did a lot of racing that year. I mean, they, they certainly uh, got some value from you. I mean, I'm just looking through, it was an extensive program. You know, it wasn't San Juan. The race of course was back then called this Tour de San Luis, essentially mm-hmm. the same race. Then he went to Mallorca, uh, West Flanders, Catalonia, de la Circular South. Tour of Cali, National Road Race, Tour of Utah, US yep. Pro Challenge, Tour of Alberta, Tour of Beijing. It was a big, big season. But um, sure. but so what what was the turning point? And why, how did you end up back at the team after a year riding at domestic level uh, in, in, in America? So how did that yeah. come about? Because that's intriguing. No, it's true. I think so the end of the end of that year, the last kind of racing block was, uh, it was Utah, Colorado, Alberta. Um, and I, and I, I rode really well at all those. Um, I was on the front for a lot of those. I think I was like 12th in the time trial after being on the front for four days in Colorado. Um, the last stage at Colorado, I, I rode the front, um, and kind of brought back the breakaway almost by myself, uh, and Howes won the stage. Um, like I had a few really special rides over, over that era. And then Alberta, I think I was, I was top 10 in the, the opening time trial there, which was like a pretty stacked field. Duma won one. He won by a lot, as I recall. But okay, right. it was like, it was a real, it was, it was a big race. And I was like, I, I was up there more than I should have been. Basically, I think it was hard for JV to justify not extending my, my deal after that year, but for whatever reason he, he didn't, he couldn't. Um, so the next year, he, he, they brought me back in pretty quick. So I was, I, I won Redlands. I went back to, um, that, that team was rally They're now human powered health. Yep. Uh, I went there, had more of the domestic schedule that I've been doing the last seven or eight years. Um, won Redlands pretty quick was working with Mike Woods was a, a brand new Mike Woods on his maybe third year of bike racing. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I taught him everything he knows. <laughs> he immediately figured out more than me, but, uh, it, it was that, and so they they picked me up middle of that year, and then yeah, I'm not sure what that was because 2016 was was a lot 
a lot like 14 where I just, I just never really had opportunities. Um, but I kind of delivered where I was asked and, but I felt like I was, I was set up to fail from, from that year. Uh, and, and from a schedule perspective, you know, the, the, the race schedules, the, the directors determine it. It's very subjective of who belongs at which race. Um, and, and there's really not much you could do to get out of it. Yeah. So there, there's no, there's no discussion there. It's just like, here's where you're going. And then your schedule determines, uh, your results and your ability. If they send me a bunch of flat races in, in Belgium, uh, guess who's not going to crack the top 10 that year. Uh, yeah. and, and stuff like too, where, uh, you know, you don't know what's what race you're doing until three days before you're on the list for one, you train for it. And then, you know, the day before you get on a, supposed to get on a plane, you're taking off it. Um, I was called up to do, I was, I was training for like Basque and Catalonia, like all the kind of hilly spring races. Um, and then, you know, I get a call, you're doing Roubaix in 48 hours. And it's like, yeah. well, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to do well there. Like, that's not how that's ever going to work. Yeah, it's, a, it, it is interesting. And I don't think it's something that's spoken about much. And um, I remember Dan Lloyd telling me he rode, he rode the Giro and then rode the Dauphiné, but wasn't due to do the Tour de France. And then with three days to go. Um, I think this was his, either his first or second tour. He was just spent, utterly wasted. And they said, you've got you to ride the tour now. And, and I think the, the um, not unorthodox, but the quite, quite often chaotic nature of a rider's schedule isn't something that's talked about much. I mean, there are riders who have a very neat schedule. With others, um, it's far more, it's, it, again, I wouldn't even call it organic. It's just chaotic um, and very, very difficult. And, and it's hard to get your training right. It's hard to get um, your routine right when you don't really know what your um, what your calendar is. And that leads you, leaves you in a in a rather unproductive state of flux, I'd imagine. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I think like the you know the big name riders, they have their their year is planned out in advance. They have an arc, you know, here's the grand tour you're doing, here's yeah. what you're doing to prepare for it. Um, and, and I would say like kind of the lower third is just I felt like my job was to kind of hang out at, at 90% and never be, I mean, this, nobody told me this, but that was what I figured out is like, I just need to be available. Uh, but I don't, I wouldn't have the luxury of like a peak, you know, for example, because yeah. a peak requires a build and you might get a phone call halfway through that build. So yeah. my, my memory of that year was kind of just like hanging out in Girona and like, kind of like riding a lot, but not too much. Cause I might yeah. have a race tomorrow. Um, and, and yeah, never really knowing what I was going to be up to. Um, which, which is, you know, in addition to like not being good for, for physical, it was just when, when they didn't renew me, it was, it was in a lot of ways a relief. I was like, yeah, I don't have to do this. So like it was, you know, my mom wanted to visit me in Girona, but I didn't know what I was going to be doing next week. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I, again, pro cycling, especially if you're riding for a world tour team, it's, it's kind of romanticized. It's glossy, it's shiny, it looks lovely. And you see these images and you think it's kind of smooth, but for a lot of riders, you know, you're not earning necessarily a tremendous amount of money. Um, there's a lot of sacrifice for for very little sometimes, and it can be quite. It's a, it, there's no other word for it. It can be quite a brutal sport, um, whatever level you're at. But they're the levels that we don't talk about um, of the sport where it's just a, gr- a grind and it's very very hard. Um, and I, I would imagine at that point you were starting to ask yourself some pretty serious questions about was this really what it was cracked up to be, you know, um, about that. Was it, did you find that quite a difficult time? Yeah, it was, it was very difficult. It was, I think that year it was, you know, I was 30 years old. Um, and I kind of, you could sort of see the arc of my career, Mm. uh, and it wasn't still going up. It's, it's easy when there's hope. It's easy when you're in your first year world tour, what's it going to be like, you know, here's, I've made these improvements. And then, you know, a couple of years in, I sort of realized like, well, the best I'm going to get is, $65,000 $65,000 a year where, you know, I'm doing a lot of races that are dangerous. I don't know what my schedule is. And, you know, it's, it's going to probably go down from here. Yeah. Um, so it, it wasn't like, that was, it was, that was the year that I kind of realized that like, whether I, if I, I could have kept it going a little bit. Um, I, I did have a couple offers from, from mid tier teams after that, but it, I knew what it would be like. Um, yeah. and I don't need to, you know, at 31, I don't need to go crash at the tour of Azerbaijan, um, was, was kind of my take. So that was, that was, it, it took a whole year to experience that. And then honestly, like I was, I was writing draft animals at the time. Uh, and that, that kind of helped me process it as I didn't know how the book was going to end when I started writing it. Right. Um, Right. But it it ended quite neatly. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Well, um, well, that le- leads us to quite a nice point. We kind of get to the point of what you're doing now. But what we'll what we'll have, uh, Philly, if you don't mind me, uh, don't mind. Um, I'm going to impose this on you. It's a nice midway point in the podcast. Um, you you were where were you born again? Uh, I was born in Columbus, Ohio, actually. So you, that's it. Yeah, I, I did know that. But you're born in Columbus, but you were raised as a, as a youth, weren't you, in Atlanta? Correct. So it's time, Phil, for the Atlanta quiz. <laughs> okay. Yo, yo. What's up? You all ready? Uh-huh. Let's do it. Uh-huh. Turn off your phone. That's right. Get your thinking cap on. Yeah, yeah. It's time. What time? Time for the Atlanta quiz. That's uh, a, ta- a chance for Niall, our producer, to shine. What do you reckon to that, uh, to that jingle? I think it was great. I, I think yeah. he, he shone brightly. Yeah, he, he always does shine. I mean, the, the, it's an yeah, interesting, uh, interesting jingle. But uh, basically, I've got four questions um, loosely based around Atlanta. Please do not fret because I'm not going to put you overly on the spot, Phil. They are multiple choice, okay? Um, so I'm going to give you four four different answers, only one of which is right, all based around Atlanta. Are you sitting comfortably? I am, yeah, I'm ready. I'm still in the final bathroom. Okay, then we will begin. Okay, right. Phil, according to the Koppen climate classification, which is incidentally one of the most widely used climate classification systems, what climate does Atlanta have? Okay. Uh, Does it have A, a humid subtropical climate, B, an oceanic climate, C, a humid continental climate, or D, a tropical savanna climate? It's definitely humid. I'm gonna have to go with a uh, subtropical. I don't. It's not tropical, but it does get it does get toasty. Correct, Amundo. Good yeah. start. Hey. That was multiple choice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would have been a little bit harsh if I'd have just asked you just to name it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, good choice. Um, good choice. You're off to a good start. Um, you. You're, you're in the early move. You're in the early move. Okay. Um, <laughs> question number two. Legendary British punk rock band, The Sex Pistols, played their first ever US gig in Atlanta. But my question to you, Phil, what venue, okay? Was it A, the 688 Club, B, the Fox Theater, C, the Great Southeastern Music Hall, or D, the Metroplex? Uh, Fox Theater sounds weird for The Sex Pistols. Fox Theater is kind of like, that's where you'd see the plays growing up. You know, we'd see the Nutcracker there. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the the fuzzy seats and whatnot. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have to go with, with D. It's funny. I ride, living down the street from me is uh, this guy, Mike Dimkich, who is one of my best friends now. He plays guitar for Bad Religion as a friend of Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols. Oh, wow. Right. Uh, yeah. Cool. So that's, that's I, I wish I knew this better. Mike is disappointed. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna go with D. I forget what it was, but it, it sounded it sounded close. The Metroplex. You're gonna go for that, yeah? Yeah. Okay. I feel great about it though. It's incorrect, mate. But um, what I can tell you is the six eight yeah the six eight eight club and the Metro uh, the Metroplex are both punk clubs, or they were back in the day. Okay. But the correct the, the location they actually uh, performed for the first time was C, the Great Southwestern Music Hall. Huh. Which doesn't sound very sex pistoly at all, if you ask oh, me. I'm not um, sure that still exists, does it? I, I, I'm not sure. I'm, okay. I'm not sure. Um, and that's. A, I'll give you a multiple choice question. <laughs> yeah. Does it still exist? <laughs> it still exist? Uh, God, that's yeah. You put me on the spot. Um, okay, question three. So you got fifty percent out of the first two. So uh, it's still looking good. Still looking good. Okay. Okay. The Atlanta flag, Phil, carries the official seal featuring a phoenix rising from the flames and the word resurgence, which is the Latin for rising again. There are also two dates, okay, on the seal, one signifying the formal uh, incorporation of its name and the other the end of the Civil War and the start of the Reconstruction era. But my question to you, Phil, what two dates are they? Okay. Um, So... Yeah, signifying the formal incorporation of Atlanta and then the end of the Civil War. Two dates on the on, on the seal. A, 1841 and 1860. B, 1842 and 1861. C, 1846 and 
Yeah, they're all too close together. You know, you didn't give me a lot of range. <laughs> Sorry. The thing is, I thought, you know, you're a bright lad. I thought you might know a little, you know, so about the, especially the end of the Civil War. So I thought I'd keep these dates narrow. In, in U.S. history. Uh, so that's what we're going to deal with. I'm going to, I'm going to guess C. 1846 right. to 1862. Entirely a guess. Okay. And by the way, I, I do want credit for not Googling this because I'm, I'm looking at my laptop. So I could have very easily cheated. That's who I am. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I do like that because this is, this is a trust-based quiz. And you got a round of applause. Well, our live studio audience have acknowledged um, okay. your, your integrity there, uh, Squire. Thank but uh, unfortunately, um, it's not C. It is D, 1847 mm. and 1865. Wow. So, All right, 47 felt late. I actually, yeah, I ruled that yeah. out. Yeah, so uh, 1865 um, was the, the end of the Civil War and the start of the Reconstruction era because, of course, Atlanta was, was, was badly was devastated. Well, okay, good, good, uh, yeah. question number four. This is a slightly shorter question, but I do like it. Um, Phil, what was Atlanta first known as, um, as a recorded settlement? So the first formal name for Atlanta as a formal settlement Oh, okay. I can I can do this without the without the choices. It was uh, terminus, right? It was. Yeah, it you was get a, you get two points. I always get a two points. There was like whatever the train system was from from north to south. Atlanta was the end of it, so that was why that was how they built Atlanta. Was just it was the end of the train tracks. It, that, that's right. I mean, it was first known as terminus, um, then it was known as Thrasherville um, after turn of it. Um, yeah, after, after Terminus. And then I then it was Foundriesville. I made that one up. And then Five Points, um, which was... It was also known as Five Points at some point. But yeah, it was basically a train terminus. And uh, there was a few little kind of general stores, uh, a bar that opened up around it. And it was, wasn't really given any any kind of future. And then it just got big. And right. now it is Atlanta. Entirely, yeah. Most cities are built because they're like the some they're on a river or they're on a coast some kind of a port and atlanta was was purely coincidence uh geographically there we go so just doing a bit of math so you've got a, a bonus point there 75 percent on the atlanta quiz well done squire well done right. thank you thank you that, so, that is consistent with my high school another round of applause we've got a great crowd in tonight i tell you what uh, we always get a great crowd in for the pod um brilliant stuff so to feel that neatly leads us on to, well, not so much the present day, um, but it kind of leads us into to our meeting <laughs> in, in Taiwan and then the next step. So sure. um, so when, when you were let go, for want of a better word, um, by Cannondale at the time, um, what, what, what were your thoughts? How, how were you placed mentally? Were you quite hopeful for the future? Because clearly, you've, you know, you're, you're a, bright, a, bright, a bright bloke. You're always going to have a lot of options. But what were your thoughts at that time? And I know you mentioned you were writing the book, which, which drew that chapter to a close. But the right. future at that point, how did it look for you then? No, you'd, you'd be surprised at the lack of options. For, for the while that I was trying to get a job, it was, uh, it was quite tricky. And, I've, and I still don't know if I could pull that off. Um, but the, you know, I'd, so I'd started a couple of businesses as, as, while I was racing. The thing about bike racing is, especially in the US, like in, in Europe, it's, it's full time, uh, you know, your 60 race days kind of thing. The U S the schedule was a lot more like 35 or 40. Um, there's a lot of free time. You can only train, you know, 20, 25 hours a week is kind of a big week. Um, so I, I had, I had a clothing business. I started, uh, what else was I doing? I had these like recovery pants, kind of like the Norma Techs Now I had the, a, like a sort of a knockoff version of those that was a lot cheaper. Um, so I was doing all these weird side hustles and not because I was into business it was because I was trying to get by um, and I, and I kind of just saw opportunities and Alibaba was new anyway. Um, so I had, I had an agent at the time when I was, when I was racing who, uh, works at a big sports agency in LA. I kind of met him through riding when I, when I landed in Los Angeles. Um, and he'd offered to hire me when I, when I was, I was like halfway through 2016. I was like, dude, JV screw me again. I could, I could feel it. <laughs> I'm not going to get, when I was, when I was flying home from Roubaix, I was like, I'm not feeling good about this you know, 2017 being a contract. Sure. Um, and so he'd offered me a job at, at, at the agency. Uh, so it was actually a, a very, a very strong landing. I thought a good escape, uh, to work at a, at a big sports agency and, and something that I'd be suited for as far as, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm into sports, but I also, I'm, I'm kind of, I know how to hustle. I know how to build a business. Um, and that, that never, that never quite panned out. Like he ended up, 
leaving that business and it was that 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 turned into a mess so the next year was was really uh a lot of question marks of what i was going to do um and i kind of just put it together one piece at a time with basically like every month would go by when, when i first stopped a couple sponsors immediately were like hey you know we'll we'll pay you to be an ambassador and it was it was very little money but it was something mm-hmm. uh, and basically like each month i i was like crap i don't have a job yet uh i better find another sponsor and it was kind of one month at a time i'd, wow. I'd put together you know like three thousand dollars from this one three thousand dollars from this one and at the end of that year i was like well if you add it up actually that's not so bad uh and i kind of got them to renew and and slowly was able to figure out how how that's going to work when did you actually launch your your youtube channel um i'd actually launched i'd had it uh when we were doing taiwan i made a video there um the so yeah i'd, I'd had it at that point but i it, that was um it was smaller i think i only made 10 videos that year sure. I, I didn't know how to do it i still it was a long time until i started doing my own editing and kind of being being regular with it but my my plan that year kind of what i was able to pitch to the the, the few sponsors i had was that i would do 10 episodes of the, the show is called worst retirement ever yeah yeah um and it was just one at a time with with that there's just uh, again watching some of the, the things that you've said um quite recently and i, and I want to ask you because clearly um you wanted to be a pro you were a pro you you, you know some amazing achievements but there's would it be fair to say there's a, a little bit of bitterness or regret there because you said that when you finally left cannondale that it, it broke your heart and that you felt that uh, you were worthless, and there, I just want to explore that because they're, they're really, really strong feelings, Phil. And um, and then you also said you wanted to get your revenge on pro cycling. Why? Why is that? Why is that? Um, no, it was. It was very emotional. Um, mm. It was, and I, I definitely, I, I guess I'm still bitter, but I feel like I've kind of overcome it. I, I have nothing to be bitter about anymore because it worked out better. Sure. Uh, being being elsewhere. Um, what, what I do now, I wouldn't trade for what I was doing then, but, but that wasn't the choice at the time. Um, ultimately I kind of just feel like I wasn't done right by the sport. Um, mm. and, and I think, I think that's fair to say, um, for, for the work I put in and seeing what, what other riders of similar ability kind of got to do for, for whatever reason, um, I, I didn't get the right shot. And there's plenty of people who had similar abilities who didn't get that, the opportunities either. Um, but you're, that- I mean, but, but in what you're doing now, um, in a, you can dictate your own terms, dictate with with your sponsors who seemingly give you an amazing amount of editorial freedom as well, which is must must be wonderful. Uh, you you can still show off or your physiological talent uh, as well as your as your, as well as your intelligence by setting your own kind of different challenges, which you know you've got right. a hell of a following now. So I, th- I think my, my last time I looked, hundred over one hundred and ten thousand subscribers on YouTube, which is no mean feat at all, and you. And you seem to be having a lot of fun, and you—I I love the way you speak really plainly. But you seem to really be enjoying it, and you've got a great following, mate. No, I am. I enjoy. I, I, I certainly appreciate what I what I've been able to do. Um, I added a charity component to it that was kind of something missing from 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 racing. As as I got older in racing, like the occasionally when I got to win something, it didn't really feel like much. I, I you know, I, you read the news too much, and and winning a bike race doesn't feel that important. Um, so I, I, I've been raising no kid hungry for been raising money for no kid hungry for several years now. Um, and just through that, I've had more impact than I ever had. Uh, I get the bitterness comes from the, you know, I'm, I'm now, this is my sixth year retired and I'm still, I, I'm still doing numbers. I'm still, I guess it's what I wanted to do was race a bike. I wanted to do the tour de France. I wanted to, you know, get a chance to, to explore something physically and not have to, you know, show off my, my feats of strength via some creativity. So my, my first year retired, um, I mean, I mentioned this in my last video, but I, there were three different times that I was going for KOMs for, for YouTube videos and I did 400 Watts for an hour. Yeah. And I remember my feeling at the time. Yeah. It's insane. That's just, that's that's just, it's a world-class thing. And I've, and you know, four years after that, I, I did a individual pursuit that was a world-class time. So there's your hour long effort and there's your, your four and a half minute effort, um, which is basically I, I deserve to, to be a pro and that's what I wanted to do. So I guess the bitterness comes from, but I remember when I got, when I, you know, when I got the KOM for Mount Hamilton for doing 400 Watts for an hour, but I just remember thinking like, boy, what a waste of 400 Watts for an hour. Cause I yeah. really would have rather used this somewhere else that, that feels more meaningful, that feels more competitive, that, that, you know, on, on a, on a stage that I, that I felt that I'd earned. Yeah. Um, I, I, so I, I can see, yeah, I can see with it. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut across you. I just, I just, um, I can see where that bitterness is. You know, when you know, 
Um, and, and you're a person that, you know, understands the physiological, the science behind the sport. And uh, I've heard you talk about it and, and in, in your uh, in your YouTube videos. And there's a couple of quite geeky, well, there's many, many quite geeky ones, which I know people love. And you have a real deep understanding. And when you understand your own physiology compared to your peers, um, but you're not able to, you know, show your true potential, I can understand where that resentment, or not resentment, but frustration lies. But, uh, but to to gently remind yourself sometimes that you could could do it. And the more that you move away, I guess the, the more time there is between your last year as a pro and now, the easier it's becoming. Because as you just said a few moments ago, you are really happy and you wouldn't change it. But the, but the closer to the time you retired and you're still a physiological, you know, excellent specimen, that must have been, that must have jarred, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's that's what it was. That's, that's, where, that's where the emotion came from. Yeah. Um, and, and at some point I kind of, you know, but realistically too, like, you know, the, the power I had, the ability I had, even, even at my peak, even retired, um, it, it's not like I would have won the tour, you know? So I'm realistic about that. The, yeah. the, whatever I, I wasn't able to, to do wouldn't have, you know, set the world on fire. It's, it's not that big of a deal, but it, it was, it was what I wanted. And it was something that I, I worked really hard for and then, and then had to kind of toss. So it's been, it's been really great that I've kind of found another use for it, um, and, and on my own terms. And, and like you said, what's, what's great now is my, my, my agreements with sponsors is it's, I, I, I'm going to do cool stuff with your stuff every day. Yeah. Uh, there's no, there's no events. There's no specific deliverables. Um, it's just, here's the quantity of, I'll make, I'll make a bunch of videos. I'll be on Instagram. Um, and th- I think the first couple of years I had, I had a calendar and a, and a schedule and the sponsors required that. And, but every time halfway through, I would just found something else that was cooler and I would throw yeah. the whole schedule away <laughs> Yeah, uh, and they never complained about it. Um, yeah. So, so I, now since then, I just kind of explained that and I stopped. Uh, so, so yeah, having, having the full creative freedom and being able to do whatever I, I have to do a lot. I never stop. Um, I, I work hard, all, all that, but, uh, but it is whatever I want. And that, that's, that's a blessing. So explain to me um, how the jukebox cycling team came along. It's, it sounds like what you've got there is it's it's a really interesting pro, um, project. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, it is it's it's great. I think the 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 U.S. domestic racing scene has has gone through a lot, and since I since I started paying attention, I'm not really sure. I think it's it's a million factors. Um, when I got into racing, so now we're in 2005, 2006 is when I'm first racing a bike. Uh, in college, that was that was sort of the the peak or the the tail end of the peak of the Lance era. Um, there was a, a thriving scene in the U.S. There were teams like HealthNet, Toyota United. There was you know buses and and guys making six figures to win to win races like Redlands. Yeah. Um, the Tour of Georgia, Tour of California was starting up. Um, it was it was a vibrant scene, and you could do you could do sixty race days and be a professional and never leave the states. Um, yeah, that, that was, and that was really all I, I was looking for when I started, that was all I saw. So I'm going to these races and I'm getting dropped. Um, but I'm like, man, I, you know, someday I could win the tour to tuna, <laughs> uh, which was a big deal. And I'm not, that was called the tour to tuna, Altoona, Pennsylvania. Um, nothing to do with fish. Right. But, uh, but the, and that was what I was striving for. And then that slowly, like that just stopped existing. So by the time I got to, you know, a few years later, uh, I, I won Redlands. My salary was fifteen thousand dollars that year, um, and nobody was making more than I don't think seventy five. Right. Um, so it wasn't really like a living, and it was going the wrong. So you know, fewer races would lead to fewer teams and fewer sponsors. So kind of this like weird downward spiral um, that that I can't pinpoint the the start or the blame of it, but that was what happened um, to to where now. Um, there's really not a lot of teams that, that focus on domestic racing. There's, there's a, a criterium scene that's kind of growing and evolving. That's interesting. Uh, gravel is the same, but realistically gravel, you know, there's, there's only a few major events and, yeah. and very few people that are making anything close to a living on it. Like, I'm not sure if that's a real thing. It's quite top heavy. It's, it's participatory and it's, and it's great. It's strong. But, um, so I think jukebox sort of just looked at like, okay, we want to be in this market. We want to spot, we love cycling. Um, but they're not going to start a road team to do a bunch of races no one's heard of or, or races that, that don't even exist anymore. Yeah. Uh, so they're just like, we're just going to sponsor a bunch of people doing cool stuff on this continent. 
Yeah. Um, and I think I was the first one that they talked to and, and they're, there's, there's a, there's a big name they're picking up soon. That'll, that'll come out. Um, but they're, you know, they're, they're non-endemic, which is where it's hard to find a brand that, that wants to sponsor cycling. That's not part of the cycling industry. That's so they're, they're a printing, uh, sticker company out of Vancouver. So like printing, so anything from, um, you know, gift wrap to tissue paper and posters for trade shows. So they're going to do all the printing for my Fondo this year. Um, all, all kinds of stuff like that. And just the, the CEO is really into bikes and really into what, what a bunch of us are doing. And he's just like, I'm just going to pick and choose. And, um, what's cool too, is the structure of it is we, the, the title sponsor is jukebox. So we all have kind of a matching Jersey and, and, you know, the, the, the design is similar, but we can get our own sponsors outside of that. So guys could be on guys and girls, uh, could be on different bikes, different groups, different shoes. So it's not like the, the pro teams where they kind of own everything and they give you sort of a measy salary and there's a bunch of middlemen. It's, sure. it's, here's the umbrella that we're all under. And then you can, you can hustle, uh, outside of that, which, which suits me. Cause I've, I've learned to, to do that very well. Yeah. You, you seem to be pretty adept. If you don't mind me saying, Phil, at, at hustling, that's one thing you've done. You've done very, very well. You've uh, got it down to a fine art. I think. Appreciate that. Be, yeah. no choice. <laughs> uh, sorry, mate. There's a, there's a funny noise. Um, Oh, hold on a minute. Random oh, question alert. It's, it's gone off. Random question alert. Oh. Random question alert. It is time for a random question. You got me good there. Well, um, it, I, I don't know if you know, but the back well, a couple of years ago when we started this podcast, the, the guys at Sigma Sport insisted if I was to do a podcast that they installed a circa 1968-69 uh, Russian supercomputer in my, uh, in my spare room. Uh, and every now and again, uh, big red light flashes, and it prints off a random question that I am obliged okay. to ask my podcast guest. And I've just played chess too. I feel Pardon? like the, I feel like the computer would play chess very well too. Yeah, it was. It's kind of an. Uh, it's like a. It's kind of. It's like a kind of deep blue vibe. So you can play chess, all, all sorts on there. Uh, backgammon, um, a, a lot of <laughs> a lot of other things. Um, right, but, but, uh, but anyway, we've got I've got a random question that I've never this uh, this is true. I've never seen this before. This is just on this bit of fax paper that I've got. Okay, Phil. And I'm literally reading this for the first time. While walking along a beach, you find a message in a bottle. Excitedly, you open it, only to find a message written by yourself at the age of 16. Oh. It contains one piece of advice for the future you. What does it say? Wow, that's profound. That is good. Whoa. Um, at 16, I give myself advice. I'm going to have to steal the advice that it's my favorite advice that my my... Uh, my grandfather gave me, uh, which I like to impart to everyone, which is keep walking when you pee in the pool. Okay. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. yeah. The other one my grandpa taught me is, uh, is it's okay to pick your nose as long as nobody's looking. Yeah. Those are the two. Cause everyone has to pick their nose. I, yeah, when I was a kid, the story of that is I was a kid and I was picking my nose. Uh, and my mom was like, you can't do that. Grownups don't do that. And I looked over my grandpa and he was like, yeah, they do. Just make sure nobody's looking. I was like, that I can obey. I can't <laughs> never pick my nose again. That's that's bad advice. <laughs> but I can do it discreetly and privately. Flipping heck. That's a, mm -hmm. that, I mean, that's, um, I do, I'm a little bit um, taken aback by the profound nature of that question. And you've answered it very, very well. Um, I'm just, and also as I was reading it, um, I don't know if you do this, I was I was immediately had this, the scene in my mind. I, I had a little 16-year-old Phil, um, you know, writing this um, letter, popping it in a bottle, and then you in your grizzled state now, um, picking it up on a beach, say in Los Angeles, um, and then uh, and then reading it out. Um, yeah, so that was a big moment for me. Um, oh, 16-year-old Phil would have written something much more obnoxious and less practical. <laughs> he would have done a piece of something. Um, I've got an. I've got a, apparently. It's written up. There's a little flashing display on the on the on the. the it's, it's, do you remember like computers back? Well, you won't because you weren't born. But you'd have seen computers back in the 60s, uh, early 70s. Black screen, really heavy television glass, and sure. a green and a green blinking cursor. Yeah, yeah? I'm, I'm old enough to remember that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what's happening now, and it's telling me to answer the question as well. So I will. Um, um, just on a quick tangent, when I when I was um, a kid, I was. Amazed by my grandpa, I used to love my grandparents' bits, as we all do, I guess. Mo most of us do. Mm. Um, special, special people. And um, I asked—I remember asking my grandfather, who passed away oh, about nearly thirty years ago, um, what it was like living in black and white. 
Um, <laughs> and he looked at me and said, what do you mean? I said, well, what was it like? I mean, no color. I and mean, how did you kind of deal with that? And he was like, and because all I'd seen um, from the past was primarily images of black and white. And I had no perception in my mind. And I used to lay awake at night thinking what it must have been like just to live in, in monochrome. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, that, that's great. That's, uh, a fair, that's, that's good kid logic. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Uh, I, I can't answer it. What would I? What would I? What would I um, you might have to edit this bit of the pod because I'm rambling. I'm I'm lost. It's just too profound. Um, I, I guess it would be something along the lines of um, "Don't ever stop laughing," because another thing that I was afraid of as a kid was losing the sense of being a child. Um, because I used to have a lot of fun as a kid, um, and I and I was afraid of losing it. And I thought there was a point when you became maybe 25, 30, 40, some arbitrary point in your life that you suddenly became an adult and you, you, were, and you were a different person. But as I've grown up, that line has continued to move away from me and I'm still just a slight, exceptionally more wrinkled version um, with more responsibilities and stress, but still the same person. And so, yeah, that's what I'd put in there. You know, it's okay, you know, um, never stop laughing. So that, that would be my advice. Yeah, that's beautiful, yeah. Thanks, man. Uh, okay, let's. We're weaving our way rather randomly to the end of what has been a really enjoyable uh, pod. But I just wanted to pick your brains a little bit. Just, do you follow um, much pro cycling still, Phil, or, or is it a scene that you're not really interested in, or do you still follow it from the corner of your eye, or are you fully engaged in it? Um, how do you perceive like pro racing now? Um, I. I, fo- I follow it through my, my relationships that are still in there. Uh, I yeah. have a lot of good friends that, that race. Um, I, I value those. I like to see what they're doing. I stay in touch with them. I ride with them. Um, I, I, I can't tell you the last time I like watched a race unless like if I see on Twitter that, that a, a buddy of mine is in the breakaway, yeah. uh, I, I want to, I want to watch him win. Um, other than that, uh, n- no, I, I don't, I certainly don't watch it for its own sake. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what that is, uh, to be honest. Phil, so- What's the future hold for you then? So what, what do you want to achieve um, within the next few years while you're still in really physically good shape? What, what do you want to do? Um, oh, like physical, like my actual physical goals. It's funny, like that's kind of, that's kind of secondary uh, okay. to me as far as, I, I, I'm still happy to talk about it. There's, there's, the, the problem is like when, I, when I'm driving on the highway and I just see like a mountain in the distance and a little road going up it, I'm like, I wonder how fast I could get up that. <laughs> Right. Okay. I, I, that's still, that's, that's the first thing that I think. And, and I, at some point I won't be able to find out what that is. I'm, I'm, I turned 36, uh, a couple of weeks ago. So I'm not, I'm not old yet, but it, you know, we're, we're getting there. And I, I don't, I don't think I want to be going for KOMs for a living when I'm 50. I don't feel like that's that. I feel like at some point it's embarrassing. Yeah. Um, but I, but the problem is I do love it and I think people enjoy it. So like, as, as long as I can keep some version of this going, I also, you know, it's great to be healthy. Uh, it's great to be fit. Having an excuse for that, um, is, is really a, a, a reward, but, um, I, you know, there's, there's so many things I, I haven't gotten to do much content in Europe. Um, I've had this idea for years that, that COVID definitely snuffed out. Um, well, I was very close to having an actual TV show for a while. And part of that was, was going to be, uh, based in Europe. But, uh, when I kind of gave up on that, it turned into, I, I want to do a thing called Phil wins the tour de France, which annoyingly similar to what Lachlan is doing, but a much yeah. lazier or Lachlan did last year, but uh, a much lazier version, which was, I just want to <laughs> go for like the, the biggest KOMs and the most famous uh, climbs to experience them and, and, and create content around it. Um, but the win is whether I get the KOMs or not. And I most likely wouldn't. Uh, I, I have one tour de France KOM. It's not a famous one. I got one, the, the Lancets de Montvernier. Okay. Um, so I, I can get those, <laughs> but, I, but I don't, I I'm not, not holding my breath for Alpe d'Huez. Um, but I'd, I'd love to do that version. And I Phil wins the tour de France. I win because I'm, I'm enjoying the wine. I'm experiencing the the area and I'm not doing what the bike racers do of staying in a crappy hotel and bunk beds. Yeah. Um, so that, that's kind of the angle. I'd love to find a way to pull that off, but that's, you know, expensive to, to film and, and get over there. Um, there's all kinds of what, what I guess is cool. And part of why I think what my thing was, was working is U S is pretty untapped. Like people yeah. know about all the famous climbs in Europe over and over. Um, but you know, they, they don't know about Mauna Kea. I, I, I wasn't, you know, when I was there, I wasn't making a video yet. Um, that, you know, I had a video on Letras in, in Colombia. So I think there's a lot more opportunity in stuff that you haven't heard of. Um, yeah. 
and and there's just my my list. I just have a list of of KOMs and mountains I want to go for, and it's it's longer than I'm going to live. Uh, I'll put it that way. Um, yeah. Between the U.S. and and Asia and all all kinds. So there's a ton of adventures to still have um, that that I want to do. I'm I'm not. I haven't given up on Everesting. I really killed my fitness last year trying to get in shape for Everesting and and attempting it on a hill that just wasn't. A lot of it's just about the gear is a big part of it, but the location is, is really critical. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I made two attempts on the wrong hill and the training for that, uh, set me back quite a bit. So I, I would like to attempt to Everest again, but I'm not really thinking about it until I'm in shape, but I am, I'm improving. It's, it's been nice. Like I got back onto uh, a training plan. I hadn't done a real training plan for years, uh, but I'm, I'm on like week six and feeling substantially better, uh, every week. So that's, Someday I'd like to do that, but it's, it's all kind of question mark and, and vague goals, which isn't helpful, but, uh, there's, there's more than I can think of, I guess, is the answer. Mate, it, it sounds like you've got a lot of interesting stuff planned. And I guess that when, cause it happens to all of us when that the physical side starts to ebb ever so slightly, you stop making progress and that plateaus. And then ultimately like me now, I'm 52, start to drop off a little bit. There's still so much joy winning cycling, you know, and, and some of the, my, 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 my most enjoyable cycling has been when I know I've been nowhere near my physical peak. And there's a lot of pleasure in in being able to push out big numbers and win bike races. That That's a wonderful thing. But there's also just a lovely thing about just riding and exploring, uh, which you're clearly, I, I can see that as the next, like Phil's rough guide to the climbs of America or the world. But hey, you don't have to, you don't have to try and break the record. You just ride up in them and, and experience them. I think that's, it's just what you have laid out before you sounds fascinating. And, um, and um, I wish you all the very best with it, mate. I, I appreciate that. And I want to say before it sounds like we're wrapping up, but you, what, what you're doing has definitely been blazing the trails and talking to you in Taiwan and the, the moving into having a reputation from the sport and taking it into content and sharing those stories. Um, like you've definitely been an inspiration and it's a, it's a short list of people who've, who've kind of achieved that and everyone's kind of made up their own route. Um, but, but I appreciate you putting in that work and laying that foundation for, uh, for the rest of us moving, moving forward. No, that, that's really kind, mate. And um, it's been, I've, and, and thank you for coming on the pod. Apologies again for being late, but no, that that really does mean a lot. And um, yeah, keep doing what you're doing, Phil. And hopefully, um, we could meet up at some point. I'd love to meet up and go on a ride. Uh, you'd, have to, you'd have to get the coffees in at the top, obviously. Uh, whether that's in Europe, whether whether that's in America, I'd love to go and do something kind of epic in the future. So let, let's keep in touch. Climb over there. That's been that's been a, a thing in the back of my mind for a long time. The problem is, it's always right during my Fondo season in October. Yeah, um, but I, I'd I'd love to just experience that. It looks like a really fun scene. Oh, it is. It's a cool scene, mate. I, I would definitely hold your coat and set up your turbo trainer for you. So don't <laughs> don't don't worry about that. <laughs> hey, Phil, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, you take care of yourself, and thanks again for joining me on the podcast, mate. Thank you so much. Back at you. What a great chat I had there with Phil. Such a smart and motivated guy. I'm delighted he's doing things his own way and enjoying his cycling more than ever. Thanks to Perry App Gwyneth for the podcast theme tune and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe and rate the pod and want to recommend it to your future self by writing the name of the podcast on a message in a bottle and hoping you find it yourself many years into the future. And finally, a massive thanks again to Phil for joining us on the podcast today. I hope he has a great time riding for Jukebox, doing whatever takes his fancy. Cheers all, stay safe and goodbye from the Hotel Z in Bath. Other hotels in Bath are available. Terms and conditions apply. This is not an endorsement. Thank you.